Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to the Arkansas AgCast for August 26th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we learn about how certain new federal tax proposals could hit farmers hard, and we meet another member of the next class of Arkansas Agriculture Hall of Fame inductees. We also get a progress update on the White River Irrigation District Canal Construction Project. First, Jason Brown talks to Dr. Rick Cartwright to hear about his career leading up to his induction into the Arkansas Agriculture Hall of Fame. Dr. Cartwright shares some of the lessons he learned from the field and those in the industry who had the greatest influence on his work. I'm Jason Brown with the Arkansas AgCast, and today we continue our series of interviews leading up to the Arkansas Agriculture Hall of Fame induction. The Arkansas Ag Hall of Fame was founded in 1987 by Paul Harville, C.R. Swarry, and the Greater Little Rock Chamber of Commerce. The program builds awareness of agriculture and honors past and current leaders who have given selflessly to the farm industry, their communities, and to economic development in the state. It's my honor to welcome the next guest in our series, someone who I've had uh, the pleasure of working with for more than a decade, Dr. Rick Cartwright. Dr. Cartwright, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jason, and good to be here. Yeah. All right. Well, so glad to have you. Um, today, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking uh, about your career uh, talking about some of the folks that you've uh, worked with over the years and really just, um, you know, we're going to kind of hop in a time machine, if you will, and, and, and take a look back. So thank you for joining us for this. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Let's dive right in. What do you say? I, I'm ready if you are. All right. Good. Okay. Dr. Cartwright, you dedicated, uh, we'll call it 44 years on paper, probably more if we really wanted to get technical. Uh, but you dedicated 44 years to a career in, in agriculture. How did you first become interested in agriculture or working in ag? Well, Jason, like, um, like a lot of people that end up uh, with a career in, in this field, I, you know, I started by growing up in agriculture in the big picture of agriculture in north central Arkansas on a hill farm and raising broilers and cattle and working in timber and all that kind of stuff with my family. And I uh, thought if I get out of this, I'd, I'd never do it again like most kids. <laughs> but when I went to uh, went to the university after my, my brother had gone up there and my uncle, uh, who was a forester, had encouraged me to go to school. So I went to the university um, in 1972. And uh, first couple of years, I, I didn't go into agriculture. And um, looking back, that was a mistake. And then I got into the College of Agriculture. And uh, I, it just kind of gelled for me, uh, not because I was familiar necessarily with all that stuff, but just the people were just um, so welcoming, um, so uh, such good mentors. Um, they, you know, very quickly I became convinced that a career, and I was always interested in science, and the agricultural science were really booming um, at that time at the university level. And I got involved in that with my advisor 
and a lot of hands-on stuff. And that convinced me to go into the career. And then my first job was working on an experiment station. And I just loved it, you know, being out in the field, um, working on the station itself as an agronomist, but also with the local farmers and stuff. And then uh, I went with Southern Farmers Association for a number of years and loved the business side of it, too. And so that just uh, convinced me that I had worked with some great people, and that convinced me that, you know, I really made the right choice by um, staying in or getting into a career in agriculture and the agricultural Later, I went back to school and got more advanced degrees because I really did want to be a, a, a kind of a practical working scientist. And that's how I, that's where I ended up. And uh, I just uh, say, you know, the people I'll keep coming back to this, but the people of agriculture is really why I uh, got interested and stayed interested in the field. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you talk about that. If I've, my goodness, I've probably lost count of the times I've talked to somebody who worked in our industry who said, grew up on a farm, left the farm, never wanted to come back. Didn't want to farm, didn't want to work in agriculture, wanted nothing to do with it. Yet here they are. So that's, uh, <laughs> it's so funny well, to hear you say that. Well, when you're young, you say a lot of goofy things and I was I was probably the record setter and saying stupid stuff back <laughs> then. But but you kind of you know at some point you got to wake up, you grow up, and you find out that your life calling maybe is a little different than what you thought at that time as a teen. Certainly, yeah. Well, glad you found your way back, regardless of the uh, me you know, too. Of what you thought you wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of that, you know, you mentioned the word scientist, and that's the word that I've seen over and over again. You know, I've I've, I've, I've tried to earn my uh, PhD in Dr. Rick Cartwright in preparing for our time, and that's the word that I see over and over again. But, you know, it's funny, even that word scientist that, that has come up so much, looking at your resume, honestly, I, I lost count of the number of roles that you held at the University of Arkansas. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your journey in the system, uh, which wrapped up, obviously, as you serving as senior associate vice president, director of cooperative extension service? Yeah, and uh, it was, uh, I mean, if you look at it close, if I look at it closely now, I think, man, I, I sure didn't have a plan <laughs> because <laughs> I just, <laughs> I ended up uh and I, you know, I'm not unique in this. Um, I've known a lot of people that that went through these roles, but I ended up, and I'm glad I did. I think I did almost everything um, in the university level in, in some way. Uh, you know, I started off as as a as an undergraduate student, la a student assistant. Mm -hmm. You know, working experiments, working in the lab working with Jim Dale, who was a great mentor, and because he would let me do anything. Uh, and that's the kind of, if you're going to be a scientist, that's really the kind of advisor you'd like to have is someone that really will sit there and help you just try anything in problem solving, you know, and that that was a great eye-opening experiment experience. And then 
you know, I went on to do, you know, professional technical support, like a research assistant, agronomist, that sort of thing. Um, even when I was in the, the business world with uh, the co-op, I, uh, I ended up interacting with a lot of people in the, in the problem-solving world, from farmers to scientists, because we were introducing a lot of products and services at that time into modern agriculture and it was a great experience to be on you know the business side of that uh, deal and when i went back to school and got into all the technical stuff i was a postgraduate researcher and all that kind of stuff postdoc um, ended up as an assistant associate full professor did teaching research and extension as a specialist for years um, you know, with some focus on uh, mostly on rice, but um, and then you know, at the it toward the end, like a lot of people, I ended up in a uh, back in a management or administrative role, and kind of went up through a couple of levels of that. And um, so, you know, if you look at it, you go like, man, this guy didn't have a plan, but uh, in a way, it was a natural evolution that I would uh, do this. For a while, I would um, get as good as I could get, and then I would move on and try to serve in a, another role. And uh, at the end, it it all worked out. Again, it it's all based on uh, people, um, mm-hmm. you know, helping people, but also being helped and pushed by some of the greatest people I think on earth, in my mind, anyway. Yeah. Well, I can only imagine, though, taking those roles, and we've heard the anecdotes of, you know, someone starting as a, you know, as a janitor and moving to a CEO or something yeah. like that, you know. I mean, moving through all of those different roles, I can only imagine sort of attributed to not only your different roles that you held along the way, but especially that final sort of position of leadership that you had before you retired. Yeah, that was, uh, and <clears throat> to me, if you get into those positions, if you're lucky enough for, um, to, to get into a position like that of leadership, uh, to me, is give back time. Um, you know, you want to try to, um, you want to try to help others um, be the best they can be, and you try to give back what you have learned mm-hmm. uh, to younger folks, and that was my whole deal as an administrator was try to remove roadblocks, uh, try to make things more efficient, but try to try to make sure that we were the uh, an organization that uh, could say yes to things and uh, not just be a, you know, a, a, a naysayer, but but try to be an um, type of leader that was going to help people achieve their potential. And that was very rewarding because that's a give back. To me, that's a, that's a give back position where mm-hmm. you try to give back from your experience. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really interesting uh, perspective, and and I think probably that was that was uh, confirmed in, in 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 a lot of what I read, at least through through the nomination um, information. Well, all right, I'm going to name. We're gonna we're gonna go back a little bit to your to your days in the field. I'm gonna name a few issues that you've worked on. Um, I'll I'll just start. Uh, I don't know. I'll start with infrared uh, aerial photography for rice sheath blight, soybean Asian rust, 
soybean cyst nematodes, uh, wheat stripe rust, gummy stem blight, which I'd like to add is in watermelons. I don't know if you remember that, uh, that work that you did. But, you know, really I could go on here. I think we've made the point that you've covered really the gamut of science in agriculture. What are some of your most memorable memorable takeaways from from that work? Um, yeah, the you know the my favorite um, my favorite work was being a an extension plant pathologist, and I you know a lot of my colleagues um, you know I liked everything I did uh, over those years, uh, no matter what position I was in. I always got up in the morning and felt like, uh, you know, uh, it's going to be a good day because uh, I was getting to go to work <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and work and work in an area in an area that was very interesting and and you know, it, for want of a better word, more helpful to people and that sort of thing. So it was it was quite fulfilling. The uh, but being a field pathologist was just I just couldn't get enough of it. And, and, you know, I can remember in rice in particular, I loved being in rice fields. And I had I remember a farmer getting up at a meeting one time talking about and I had never heard this expression before, but it was funny. He says uh, that guy, you can't swing a dead cat in eastern Arkansas without hitting him, you know, because I, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was in these fields, I mean, night and day. My family probably regrets some of that, but sure. I spent an awful lot of time out there trying to figure out what we were up against from a pest management perspective and, and rice and then soybeans. And I ended, I, like you said, I got ended, ended up, uh, I had broad interests in pathology, ended up over in the vegetables and, and, uh, uh, turf and all kinds of stuff at one time or another. But I always come back to the rice thing was, um, kind of where I, um, you know, was trained and and uh, I just uh, I just had a fascination with that particular crop and and uh, its and its potential problems and um, you know part of the reason I think I uh, I love that perspective of my career was I I keep going back to people but working with farmers and county agents and consultants and industry people in the field, I just have to tell you that was just the best, that was just the best thing. And I learned so much. And really, I would say um, I would I learned more in my life from those people than anything else I ever did, because they're on the ground. Those folks are on the ground. They're on the front end. They're getting hit in the face, you know, by everything from weather to the economy and uh, to see their and to listen to their uh, perspective, their philosophy, their wisdom, their positive spirit. Boy, that was just uh, that just that was just the greatest, uh, greatest thing, um, even more so than, you know, looking at a fungus under a microscope, which I love too, but mm-hmm. working with those people in the field uh, with all their, the positive and negative things that happened on a day-to-day and a season basis, why well, that was just, 
that I, I highly recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, and I miss the people, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, I think in every conversation that I've ever been around, you know, sort of talking about the industry and things like that. I mean, it, it seems to always come back to the people. Certainly you're, you're no different here. They're great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously a resilient bunch, I guess you have to be, uh, yeah, they're the most, uh, resilient of folks that I know anyway. Yeah, certainly. Well, so you talked, you talked a lot about rice. Speaking of rice, I read a quote from fellow Ag Hall of Fame inductee, Dr. Lanny Ashlock, uh, that called, a, he was talking about a presentation of yours from 1994 at a, at a university field day. And he said, the quote was something like this, uh, you know, I was standing there in the field listening to this guy talk, and it was honestly, I, I realized it was one of the most informative presentations i've ever heard and I, that that is that, that's an exact quote one of the most informative presentations i've ever heard so i'm curious knowing that knowing the the legend that is dr lanny ashlock and and you know in this state uh could you talk about some of the professional relationships uh that you've had over the years and, and what they've taught you about about our industry how they've maybe informed or influenced your your work um, well, I can try, you know, I, I literally knew and worked with probably thousands of people, um, in my career, which I, you know, I appreciate and love every one of them. And I'll forget, uh, a lot of the major ones, but if I go back in time, um, Lanny was a huge influence on me as an extension specialist. You know, when I came in to, I, I was trained as a research, um, person uh, in California and, and in Arkansas and uh, really had no intention of going into the extension world at that time. But because, and I'll be honest, I was not the most gifted communicator that ever walked <laughs> back in the days and I still probably are not, am not. But um, by watching people like Lanny and certain extension agents and certain uh, uh, business people, um, um, some of the field men of industry, um, I'll, I'll be honest, some Farm Bureau people that would do teaching at the time back mm -hmm. in those days. I, uh, <clears throat> I, I guess I learned how to, um, from these folks, how to make a point in my presentations. And that's what, you know, I, I tend to ramble today, but back in those days, I could actually, two things I learned from Lanny and Ford Baldwin were know your audience mm -hmm. and try to make a point, uh, you know, in, in a way that your audience can understand, they can relate to it. And these were some, these guys I'm talking about were the best of the best. And I was very fortunate to learn and be mentored by these these folks. But going back in time, that, that is a consistent thing with people that influenced me the most. Is they knew how to communicate a highly technical subject matter in a way that I could understand it. And I took away from that um, the, the need and the want to do that with other people. Because some of this stuff is... 
you know, you can speak it, you get into a very technical language. It's hard for people outside of the field to understand you. So in a way, all your uh, your work and data and everything is for naught if no one can understand and apply it. So I, I from Jim Dale as an undergraduate to Kenneth Harrison at uh, in my first job to uh, Kenneth Branham, James Stoker, Armstead Phelan in, in the in the co-op world, to Bob Webster in California and George Templeton at Arkansas, and then get up into extension. Ford Baldwin taught me to going into extension, and he is a master at this kind of stuff. And then Lanny Ashlock and I, we rode around and worked together for years. And uh, I always told everybody, if I ever grow up, I want to be just like Lanny Ashlock <laughs> because uh, he was such a good mentor, but he's also uh, just such a good person. And then, and later, you know, when I worked with, uh, in administration with Tony Wyndham and Mark Cochran and, and those guys, um, you just, I don't know, maybe I just absorbed uh, as much of the good stuff as I could. I, I often used to say I was kind of like the ultimate parasite. I, you know, I would get everything I could from you, and then I would use it myself. But I, I'll go back to, um, there were some older extension agents, Lee Hunter, Ron Beatty, Carl Hayden, that uh, heavily influenced me as well. And then the farmers. I go back to the farmers. Um, I wouldn't name them all, but Marvin Hare and Robert Seidenstricker and Robert Morey and Herbie Ziegenhorn, uh, Roger Polner, uh, and just on and on. These guys, they taught me, um, Scott Matthews, they taught me so much about uh, not only my my field of study, they you know I never forget uh, we got out there trying to figure out something on Marvin Harris farm and he goes like uh, I'm telling him all this book stuff I knew and he goes like man I just don't think this fungus is reading the same books you are <laughs> and I and I had to agree because it was doing things. Uh, it, you know, we hadn't seen before and, uh, and the farmers had to live with that stuff sure. and they have, you know, and they have a lot of observations and it was very valuable for me to pick their brains. And, um, and I learned is it, it's the old saying, I learned more from them than they ever learned from me. Yeah. And, and I just, uh, you know, I, there's hundreds of these guys, uh, Johnny Wheatley was a rice consultant, and uh, I, I probably learned as much or more about rice from him than I did um, anybody in the classroom. And he was a master at, at field observation. And Rick Thompson was right there with him as the agent in the same area. And we just uh, we learned an awful lot about some problems that just were head scratchers over the years. By uh, good observation. Uh, some, you know, intelligent discussion, but actually doing the work in the field. That's, yeah. that's where it, that's, but, you know, going back to Lanny, um, I appreciate what he said, but to be honest, um, it might've been informative, but I learned from the masters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think we just counted off probably a a a, a great foundation for a who's who of Arkansas agriculture and, and beyond. You know, you mentioned your time at UC Davis and some folks there who have been influential to you. And um, yeah, I mean, really, I think it just drives home the point that you made when we first started this conversation, which I, you said, "Hey, I'm going to talk probably a lot about the people uh, that I've worked with," and and I think it's incredible to hear you recount some of those. Uh, some of those relationships and influences that you had. Um, but looking forward, thinking about the people working in this industry, you know, what, what advice would you give for those who, who may be following in your footsteps and in, in starting a career in ag or halfway through their career in agriculture now, um, you know, now, now from your, from your seat as a, as a person who spent nearly, you know, a half century here. Yeah, I, I I don't know what all I learned. Uh, you know, in in my head, I I have trouble. Um, probably, um, I was better at communicating a few years ago, but for now it gets a little jumbled. But some things I picked up from the people again uh, that the consistency of. Uh, of excellence, of hopefulness, of, of being good at what you did and enjoying your life and work. What I got from people about this, the common characteristics, whether, and a lot of this came from farmers and agents and field people, but also at the highest levels of administration and teaching and all that stuff, industry. One is uh, I would advise people um, somehow enjoy what you do uh, every day. Get up and and be uh, enjoy your work, your life. Um, try to get into something, some aspect that is fulfilling. Um, Two is one thing I observed about the most uh, successful people is they get up every day and they decide today is going to be a good day. Um, today I'm going to be positive about whatever I'm doing. Didn't really matter. Yeah. They just have this positive spirit. And, uh, you know, if you're a farmer that's been beat down by 19 inches of rain in 24 hours and all your levees have busted out and you get out there and you say, I just can't wait to get out there and get with it. Mm -hmm. That is very inspirational to me. Um, and so be positive. Uh, you know, a lot of people talk about all this negative stuff in the world. I don't see it myself. It's a good time to be alive. Mm -hmm. Uh, and one of the reasons is the other thing I noticed about people in my in agriculture about that tend to be more so than a lot of fields is they embrace technology. They're they're early adopters. You know they they like uh, scientific answers. They like technology. Farmers are the, a great example of that. But so are uh, field specialists and industry guys. You, you embrace the technology. You know, you don't. It ain't always right, and it's not always uh, necessarily even good. But at least uh, <clears throat> have a have a positive attitude toward a modern problem solving. You know, and and uh, I've just been so impressed by a lot of growers that. Um, 
you know, we're, we're willing to, uh, to try stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I think technology is, um, uh, well, you look at this, this virus and these vaccines and how rapidly that was developed. That is very, to me, that is a very positive thing that we have that kind of scientific ability now that we didn't have, you know, when I was trying to come up through the field, it was always frustrating. It, it everything took so long, and it was just it was just uh, so hit or miss. But now it's it's very uh, it's just very impressive. The other thing I learned from farmers, especially and extension agents and industry folks and successful people, and it's, this goes back to something that a lot of people say they believe but don't practice seems like is you know you you treat other people the way you want to be treated um people react to you the way you react to them so Mm -hmm. i i learned this a lot from lanny ashlock but others as well um that you you know if uh if you want to really be happy in your life um you know, to help people, treat other people the way you want to be treated. And that pays off more than about anything else, in my experience anyway. So if you can't do that, and I've not always been successful at that, but I'm saying that ought to be a goal. You know? Yes, certainly. So those are the things I would ad- advise, you know, be positive, have, you know, find something fulfilling to do and enjoyable to do, have fun, uh, treat other people the way you want to be treated. Um, and embrace, uh, you know, embrace the times we live in. It's a great time to be in agriculture, to be in science. Um, and these are, to me, these are the good old days. The mm-hmm. things way back 50, 60 years ago, they, some of that time wasn't all that great. I lived through it and others did too. But today is a great, I wish I was starting over. Wow. It's a great time to be uh in this field and to be working in this field. Yeah. What a fascinating perspective. Well, I can tell I'm going to call you out. I heard you reference some of the, um, the historic flooding we saw in Southeast Arkansas earlier this year. So I can tell that you are still tracking uh, with the industry and can imagine that's one of many examples. Try to keep up a little bit, but I tell you, it's just, uh, just, you know, I wish physically I was able to do it again, but I tell you what, it's uh, it's a great time to be working in the in the ag sciences and to be working in agriculture. In my mind, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so speaking of speaking of keeping up and and everything, I know, I know your life is not all all still you know tracking agriculture. So I've got to ask as we wrap up. Uh, how how is retirement? How goes retirement? How are you spending your time? Uh, I'd love to know uh, how it's going. Well, um, you know, the only difference between working for somebody else and being retired is you just don't ever get a day off in retirement. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I, you know, I, I tend to be one of those people that kind of move on. Um, and I... Um, my wife and I are spending uh, time working on a list of things we put off for many years, and we we're working on our house, and uh, we work on it about every day, which keeps me um, kind of occupied on 
on that perspective. Um, I have seven grandchildren, so I tend to uh, try to, I'm not able to, but I tend to try to keep up with them a little bit. <laughs> and so that is a great, great thing. And then, and then I've, I've been working on, uh, my mother got me involved in genealogy uh, 40 or 50 years ago now. I don't remember exactly. And I've been working on it quite a bit with uh, uh, relatives around the country, around the world, I guess. And that's always been fascinating to me. And, um, you know, where kind of where you came from type stuff. Yeah. And, and now that we have uh, DNA ancestry, um, from a science standpoint, it really adds another element that we didn't have years ago. And that, that's been very fascinating to me to get involved in. So, but, you know, I stay busy every day. I don't, I, time just flies by. Wow. And I retired it last June and just doesn't seem like it was just last week, you know, <laughs> so. But a lot of retirees will tell you this at time, you know, it's easy to keep busy. And, uh, the, and, and I, uh, and I still keep up a little bit with colleagues around the world and, uh, what's going on in, in my field, um, uh, to a degree. Um, so, and I want to keep doing that as well and, and not just, you know, not just, uh, uh decay, yeah. but I'm, uh, but but I'm working on this house. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So it's not all naps and crossword puzzles. It sounds no. like. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, well, listen. I appreciate you taking the time. Before we wrap up, I just want to note that the induction ceremony, which was initially scheduled for August twentieth, has been postponed to March twenty twenty two due to safety concerns with the rising cases of COVID nineteen. Thank you again, Dr. Cartwright, for joining us on the Arkansas AgCast. Congrats to you on your induction to the Arkansas Ag Hall of Fame. Uh, you're joining 170 folks who have previously been inducted. And, uh, wow, what an honor. We really look forward to seeing you soon. And take care and enjoy your retirement. Thanks, Jason. That is a very humbling experience. And nobody will appreciate it more than me, of course. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, have a great one. We'll talk soon. Next up, Arkansas Farm Bureau Director of Commodity Activities and Economics, Dr. Jessica Richard, breaks down two federal tax proposals that could impact farmers and ranchers across the natural state, including an analysis of how those proposals have the potential to upend generational farms. All right. Thank you, Dr. Jessica Richard, for joining me today to talk about two pretty important federal tax proposals going on right now. Uh, and I say important, I mean, they're important to farmers and ranchers across the state of Arkansas. Thank you for uh, joining us to share a little insight. Awesome. Thanks for having me again, Jason. Yeah, sure. Uh, okay, let's dive in. Can you give us a brief overview? I think there are two fa federal tax proposals that we're talking about mainly. Uh, can you give us a, a brief overview of those? Um, I think, you know, we've seen them garner quite a bit of attention on farms and ranches across the state uh, in the past couple of months. Sure. Yeah, there are there are two proposals at the national level right now with respect to estate or death taxes. They are the STEP Act and the 99.5% Act. And without getting into all the nitty gritty of what the language looks like, who's mm -hmm. presenting it, um, who's on what side of what fence, we just want to narrow the conversation down to 
right now what farmers and ranchers could be up against if we don't keep a close eye on what the White House is trying to do with respect to taxes that heavily impact farmers and ranchers. Mm -hmm. So in a nutshell, those two, those two, those two bills would change the existing estate tax law. Okay. And this has a heavy influence on agricultural landowners, farmers and ranchers, because all of their assets are tied up in, uh, you know, in land and heavy equipment in, in these large assets that make a farmer look like they are very wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the general idea behind these tax proposals is we want to, we want to change the way we're, we're taxing folks that have large sums of assets. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's fine and good. We want to have that conversation. Okay. But when farmers only show up on paper as being quite wealthy, but in all reality, there is this cliche of asset rich cash poor Mm-hmm. Um, that's not a judgment on anyone. That's just a typical description of the fact that an agricultural business has a lot of valuable assets, but that turnover in that business model is not quite as liquid as other businesses that have that same asset base. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So that's where, that's where this starts to be sort of a unique issue with farmers, right? Is that capital, um, versus liquidity piece. Absolutely. So that that's that's actually that can explain a lot of why we really want to promote this conversation as Farm Bureau for farmers, mm-hmm. because there's nothing evil about the idea of wanting to reform estate taxes. The nature of this beast really has it that the way it looks like it might affect us and the way it actually does are actually two different things. If you're not careful with those statistics, um, so what I mean by that is that. When, when you look at how many farmers could be affected by something like this, it's actually quite higher and in a quite greater value than what the tax bill on its own, if you just, if you just look at the titles and the quick descriptions, sure. the, the what you would expect factor is very different. Yeah, okay. All right, good. So it's almost like you, you're reading my, my, my questions here. So... Y- to that end, you recently wrote a pretty in-depth article for Arkansas Business on how these proposals might actually affect Arkansas farmers and ranchers, and you get into some of that. Right. Um, can you just share a, a summary of that article? Yeah. Let staying kind of mid-level on the summary of that article. Um, you know, if if I if I had to and wanted to, I could recite those top five <laughs> points I went into. Um, but with without uh, without going there, I just want to say that that Arkansas business article it it really gets into the idea of what is the actual impact if these bills are put into place. How does that actually look? How does that show up? on a typical farm and ranch in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And I think that that actually has a a wide audience that that should really care about what that means because your typical Arkansas business owner also has an interest in the ag economy doing well, believe it or not. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of talk about land values. There's a lot of talk about estimated tax liabilities. That's the kind of thing you're going to see in that Arkansas business article. Yeah, we had lunch uh, yesterday at Duvall's Bluff at this little cafe right there in town. And it was full of folks who had very clearly been working on a farm. We, we had just left a, a farm ourselves. So to your point about these um, adjacent businesses relying on that our ag and farm economy uh, being Absolutely. really Absolutely. Well made. Well, 
how can folks learn more? You talked about this Arkansas business article. How, how can folks uh, learn more about these potential impacts? And, and do you mind giving me, I'm going to ask you two questions. Do you mind giving the actual names uh, of the, of the proposals or, or how, how someone might do a little research on their own too while we're at it? Oh yeah, sure. So the, um, with respect to the potential impacts, if you, if you really want to sit down after this podcast and get into it, Mm -hmm. um, Texas A&M did a study, um, looking at the, the federal tax proposals, right. And they try to break it down and really give, um, they have a policy model that that is just like ready made for this type of problem. But if you look for the Texas A&M study that is cited in my two pager, mm-hmm. um, which is a two pager that can be found on the Arkansas Farm Bureau website. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it's on our Twitter as well. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, so if, if you can find that two pager for Arkansas Farm Bureau and look into the citation for the Texas A&M study, that's going to help you build that bridge. And so what the article is that that two page article from Farm Bureau is going to do for you, mm-hmm. it's going to get you access to that, that really in-depth Texas A&M study. Um, and it's also going to digest it a little bit and apply it and focus on the example farms that are right here in Arkansas. Um, so what you can expect to find is uh, the estimate for you know, your typical rice farm in Arkansas, your typical cow-calf ranch in Arkansas, what does these two proposals mean for those types of operations? Um, And, of course, we can't get into every diversified farm example of Arkansas, but the theme and those liabilities of similar type models to our two flagship business models here in Arkansas, Mm -hmm. you know, you're starting to split hairs. Like what we have in that article really sets the stage for what this could mean for you. Um, Even if you're, you know, a large row cropper, there's, there's definitely information there you're going to be interested in. Yeah. uh, I did read that analysis on at ARFB.com and uh, notice, you know, Texas A&M did use Arkansas farm examples uh, in a couple of different ways. And then you really, in that analysis also, um, I mean, you broke down numbers in a really simplified way that, cause this is a pretty complex issue, right? Yeah, it sure is. Um, I think the thing, like if, if I could just use one figure, if, if we could, yeah. um, some of the estimated liabilities for these proposals is around, um, you know, $750,000 mm-hmm. and what that means. And the article goes into this, um, is that, that could be a tax liability you're facing at the time of transfer of this farm and ranch, a generational, a generational farm is going to look at that bill and say, how do I do this? It's there's liquidation of assets that can happen. Um, there's lack of payment for a while, you know, as a business owner, I may not take a paycheck for a little while. Um, you know, facing that kind of a liability and that figure is specific to Arkansas right now. And I think if you look at, um, you know, the the figure for the whole Southeast is actually quite similar figure. Um, mm-hmm. And there's another study that I can point people towards if they're looking for that as well. Um, but when, when you get into that article and looking for potential impacts and where do you go, what do you do with all this information, um, there's there's really a lot in that two-pager. And, you know, I tried my, my, my best to just make that digestible but not miss any of those key factors that are driving the conversation that leads to Farm Bureau's advocacy with respect to, you know, I, I know we got to do something about taxes right. in this country, but there's a way to do it too. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, 
speaking of that, I know, you know, you're an economist and I know you're not uh, a lobbyist, but I will ask you, yeah, <laughs> what should, what should someone do if they want to make their voice heard on these two proposals, you know, specifically? Yeah. So, um, you know, this, I've seen a lot of issues in the past six months with mm-hmm. Farm Bureau. Um, and I've seen a much, I have a much greater respect for the farmer's voice. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm about to say is I hope someone out there listening to this finds pretty powerful is there's absolutely nothing more valuable on this topic and issue than the farmer's voice. Okay. Arkansas is especially well situated to talk about this because our state economy and our ag economy are married. I mean, those sure, that yeah. there's huge, there's huge overlap there. Mm-hmm. So if if you want, if you're considering advocacy, uh, try and try and inform yourself. Uh, reach out to me. Reach out to our staff. Fi- find someone. Put a bug in someone's ear. And most specifically, you know, contacting legislators is is definitely something you can be thinking about. Um, you know, be it you know Bozeman coming to Arkansas. Uh, be it our state legislators, uh, you know, contacting your legislator is something everyone is something everyone can do, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and specifically our state Arkansas Farm Bureau staff are absolutely ready to assist in questions on that, too. Yeah, you're right. You know, I mean, you know, any issue I think is, is you know, I see these legislators wanting to hear from their constituents. And I think this one falls squarely into that category and you're pretty easy to find your yeah. uh, contact information is listed in that uh, Arkansas business article. Right. Uh, it's listed in the analysis. Someone could simply go to ARFB.com and pull up and just type in your name right? Uh, and search for you. So I think um, pretty just easy. Just call the to, Farm Bureau building and you ask could call the Farm Bureau and building. I'll run and climb to get Old to that school. phone. Old school. I like it. All <laughs> right. Tactics. I'm here to help. Let me help. <laughs> I love it. Well, any other information that you want to share about um, about our topic before we wrap up? Absolutely. I'm, I, I would never miss a good opportunity to try and help manage the um, – emotional tone around this issue for mm-hmm. producers. I, I think it can get really wiry the more you look into this and that like if we can't do something, if we can't win in the advocacy arena right now, this could be really scary for mm-hmm. anyone that's on a legacy farm, anyone that's trying to get into the business for themselves. Um, I, I understand how that gets scary. Uh, but truth be told, this is a great opportunity to 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 have your voice heard and make a point. Um, so I guess I would just I would just have uh Folks that are, you know, looking at this and getting a little concerned, like, hey, jump in with your voice. But Farm Bureau is going to battle over this, and I am absolutely making sure I'm doing my part in that. Awesome. Well, good good deal. I, I know this is an important issue. We we talk about a lot in the hallways here at the Farm Bureau Center and uh, and with growers and, and ranchers all along the way as well. So thank you for taking the time to inform us, uh, teach us a little something about um, these federal tax proposals. I hope you can join us again as we get closer uh, to time for action potentially or or as more information develops and uh, look forward to having you back. Awesome. Thank you so much. Anytime. All right. We'll talk to you later. Uh, Dr. Jessica Richard, thank you for joining us on the Arkansas AgCast. Finally, we pay a visit to the site of canal construction for the White River Irrigation District, and we talk to Irrigation District Board President Dan Hooks and State Representative David Hillman to get an update on legislative action to support the project and a bit of history on irrigation of the Grand Prairie. 
All right, Dan, thank you for joining us today. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the an update on the White River Irrigation District project. Um, we started off the morning with a, with a board meeting. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the board meeting today and, and what was discussed and how that went? We had, uh, we had a couple of guests today. Uh, David Hillman from Arkansas Legislature was here and Jennifer Sheehan with the Game and Fish and Megan Perkins with uh, Department of Ag. Um, Corps of Engineers representatives were here and it was just an update meeting. We had no real business to take care of other than updating our board and, and getting reports from the from the, our friends that mm -hmm. uh, on what they see and, and what their jobs have, have been producing for us. Um, we're just uh, a board of farmers that are, are trying to organize this thing, I guess, or, or we're in the center of it, but we're not doing the work, we're not doing the design and, and uh, all those little parts that, that uh, are, are important. But our people that are doing those jo uh, jobs and taking care of those issues are doing a good job for us. And, and we've made great progress. You can probably see in the background the equipment that's moving out here today. So it was an update and uh, for people to see the progress that's been made since the last meeting that was out here, which we called the groundbreaking uh, ceremony. But at that time, in, back in May, it was just little white flags stuck up in the in the field in the background and uh, now it's pretty much a completed section there behind us and uh, uh, to get a perspe perspective of scale it's uh, somebody might see the drone picture flying over it but we were talking that we need to park a pickup truck down in the bottom of that thing just to s show everyone how uh, how wide and deep the, the canal section actually is um, off to behind me on the road here it will be a crossing we discussed uh, what it's going to be uh, entailed to put that crossing in where we've ordered uh, uh, prefabbed uh, box culverts is what the design is which we're not doing the design we've got another engineer company of course doing that but that's just progress and they were talking about the road will be as high as the uh, top of the levee that you're looking at in the background to cross over uh, over the canal here, which will be exemplary of the other crossings uh, as we come to them. Uh, the box culverts were part of that value engineering or cost saving item. Rather than building a bridge over the top of it, uh, we're going to put the box culverts in the canal. So it's a lot cheaper to do it that way. Uh, it's been our mission all along is to do this economically and find ways to do it uh, cheaper. Uh, I say cheaper, the plan has been done by the Corps of Engineers for years and all, and after looking at it and actually putting it into, into play and going to work here, we saw better ways to do things. Not necessarily better, but uh, less expensive ways to keep the cost down. So the bottom line and the whole objective is for us to supply water to take care of the groundwater depletion at, at the same time it's got to be something that the farmers can afford uh, we we can't uh, we can't price ourselves out of the market so to speak or be uh, uh, not feasible uh, uh, alternative to uh, running a well in the smart aquifer or something like that so. yeah so i mean we were here in may just a groundbreaking at that point 
you've got to be proud of the progress that you see here. I mean, what what is this? What is the progress that that we look around and see say to to farmers in the area? Uh, I've heard it time and again. They say, "My gosh, I was over there two weeks ago and went back by today, and, and my gosh, those guys are moving some dirt." And uh, <laughs> Uh, I think this first section had uh, 600,000 yards of dirt to be moved in it. Their target is to be finished by Thanksgiving. Um, this construction started July the 1st is when the tractors arrived. So in six weeks, five, actually probably five weeks, we had, a, had about a four and a half inch rain event in the middle of it. Uh, they're half done. I think we heard today that they've moved about 300,000 yards of dirt. Uh, they've put in some of the pipe structures and um, they've got a crew working at this, the south end, I'll call it. There's another uh, activity to the north end from the from the reservoir coming this way. And, and uh, it is, it's just phenomenal to watch the, the uh, equipment and the, the work and the attitude out here. It's all, it's all something else. So, Jennifer Sheehan from Game and Fish was was here, and she's interested, of course, in the in the uh, prairie grass. We're going to plant on the on the levees, and she's looking at the what we've already done and, and doing a survey to make sure that's all that stuff is coming along properly. So it's uh, and I, she said all the Game and Fish is just waiting to, to uh, stock it with fish whenever uh, whenever we get water in it. So awesome. Well, uh, any other updates you want to share or before uh, we wrap up? Right now, we we are uh, we have funds to continue section by section. We've broken this down into small segments and all. And right now, we're we're kind of aiming at the Hazen Airport, which is west of the town of Hazen, about 10 miles. So um, that's down the road a few years. I mean, three three years out or so but it's one step to the next. So the plans have to be, and designs have to be reviewed and, and the funding uh, for each section. So we're, we're almost to uh, let a bid for the bids for the second section. And um, hopefully we can keep progressing and, and, and uh, speed, speed the transition from one section to the, to the next. And we're, we're kind of confident that we'll be able to do that once once we demonstrate that we can do all this, well then it's just doing it over and over and over down the line. So yeah, we're looking, we're confident that we're going to be be, uh, be able to pull this off. Uh, target for this first section to have water on about 40,000 acres available for about 40,000 acres of farmland is uh, May of 2023. So we're we're about two years, two and a half years away from actually having some water on on the ground. Yeah. Well, that all sounds good. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today and share an update and invite us out to be a part. Glad to have you. Thanks. Representative Hillman, thank you for joining us. Talk to us uh, a little bit about this White River Irrigation District project. Uh, tell me um, why it's important to farmers and, and others in this community. Well, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> when, when we first started raising rice on the Grand Prairie, which was over 100 years ago, uh, there were advertisements and postcards of the water coming out of a, a new well they had just drilled. And those were nine and five eighths inch pipes and they were on a 45 degree angle and it would shoot water out two or three feet. Two to three thousand gallons a minute. Now then, on the Grand Prairie in those same places, 
we might get 600 gallons a minute. So the water's not there that used to be there. We have gone down into the Sparta, which is a deeper aquifer. And, and I want to say right now that the Sparta aquifer is pure water. It doesn't have any, it's, it's soft, it doesn't have any hardness in it, doesn't have any other chemicals in it, and it should be reserved for future drinking water needs in the state of Arkansas. But as, as long as we have to have one or the other, we're gonna be pumping out of Sparta for agriculture. This construction we're doing right now will replace any need for Grand Prairie to be pumping out of Sparta. We've got a well on our place, it's 956 feet deep. It pumps about 2,000 gallons a minute. We couldn't farm without it. But would I like to? I sure would. And, and I will say that on our farm, uh, we have about 80% of our water is surface water. A lot of that goes back to when this district was first formed back in the 90s. We got some money for on-farm storage. We took advantage of that on our farm. And we, we circulate our water till we run the slick off from it, I like to tell people. This, this, this project we're doing now, in my mind, it is essential if we're going to continue agriculture as we know it in the Grand Prairie. Now, if we don't have water, uh, you can't raise rice. You can't raise, you can't raise corn. You can't raise a profitable soybean crop if you do that. So this is absolutely wonderful news uh, for those of us in the, in the Grand Prairie who want to continue agriculture the way it is. Yeah, sure. What are some ways that uh, that you've tracked along with the project, or even been able to offer a, a helping hand along the way? Well, uh, I like to tell the story about going through my grandfather's files after he passed away, and I found a file in there about inch and a half thick that he was on a committee one time back in the 40s, 80 years ago, 70 years ago, uh, <clears throat> to actually look at the potential for using White River water on the Grand Prairie. They knew back then they were going to run out of water. And it's been a long time coming because we've made different practices. We've uh, used our, our surface water to a greater extent. We've done about everything we can do there. And then um, when this project started, I was on the ANRC commission at the time, near and dear to my heart. And so I've been with this project every step of the way from day one. Sure. Perfect. Uh, anything else you want to add about the project or the work going on here today? Or well, I don't know how much of this uh, you're going to be able to see, but they've got a canal out there that you could drive. You could drive the the, the steam locomotives coming to Little Rock this week. You could drive right down the middle of it and wouldn't even see the thing. It it is fanat fanatical. I mean fantastic what they have done and they've done most of this in about six weeks so you turn a farmer loose with a dirt buggy and there's no telling what they're going to accomplish so i think uh, I, i'm more excited about this project now than i've ever been before we're going to get it done we're, we're going to solve the water problem on the grand prairie that's it for this week we'll be back next thursday with the latest on arkansas agriculture